Witness Statements in a Changing World, Part 3. You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial, construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the final part of our three-part mini-series on the reforms to the taking of witness statements and their preparation in the business and property courts of England and Wales, in particular the Commercial Court, Chancery Division and TCC. I'm joined again by my colleagues at 39 Essex Chambers, Johan Ho and Ruth Keating, who are both specialists in commercial and construction litigation. I'm Philip Kuhn. I'm a junior barrister also specializing in commercial disputes. In the first two parts of our mini-series, we looked at general issues affecting witness evidence, from dishonesty to demeanor and the use of documents. In the second part, we looked in some detail at the new reforms in PD 57 AC and the test drives and views of the working group that's been steamrolling these reforms and also commenting on potential concerns. And this final part of the mini-series will just dig, dig a bit deeper and look at what the implications are and what the ways around some of the issues we identified in part two might be. And Ruth and Johan again will take the lead on, on some of the detail. To, to get started on this, um, what other vehicles, Ruth, are there for introducing this sort of material, given our concerns about the costs, at least in some cases, or the complexities of complying with these new rules? I certainly share your prediction, Philip, that the immediate response to these reforms will be to see, well, where can this information go? And if I'm not squirreling your question too much, I, I almost think it's easier to think about where we can't put it. So we can't put it, or at least it's very difficult to put it in the pleadings. They're, of course, designed to be a concise, a concise statement of primary facts. And there's much case law on statements of fact or pleadings, which end up being too long and including unnecessary detail. So I think we as practitioners will have some difficulty getting the information in there. The second point, and it's something we're all familiar with, is you can't spring it at trial. There's a raft of authorities deprecating the use of ambush tactics. And so we very much will have to think about where can we put this in advance, but we might have to give some real thought to the places where it can go. In terms of thinking about how the working group have tried to balance this already, I think it's interesting that at the start of all this, there was a mention of the introduction of a requirement for parties to produce a pre-trial statement of facts setting out their factual case. And this would have been in addition to the witness statements and it would have been exchanged at the same time. The purpose of that probably was to confine the witness statements to the evidence which they could properly give. And although it seemed to garner some favour with the Business and Property Courts Board, it doesn't feature in the draft practice direction. So it may be that it's come out of favour. It's certainly been given the tentative wording of giving further consideration. But I think that's the kind of picture we're looking at at the moment when we think, well, where is this material going to go? There is also an element of naming and shaming in the practice direction. 
You may recall from an earlier part of the miniseries that the relevant legal representative has to certify that he or she is satisfied that the purpose and proper content of trial witness statements and proper practice in relation to the preparation have been discussed with and explained to the witness and believes that the statement complies with Practice Direction 57AC and paragraphs 18.1 and 18.2 of Practice Direction 32, and it has been prepared in accordance with the Statement of Best Practice. The final report of the working group described the Certificate of Compliance and noted, in terms, that the named solicitor will be at risk of being identified if criticism is subsequently expressed. So there is a clear judicial desire to name and shame solicitors to ensure discipline in witness statements. There is also an open question as to whether any serious breach of these requirements may sound in even more serious consequences, such as breaches of the SIA Code of Conduct. Well, I think an additional point that, that builds on what Johan has said there is that there are going to be serious ramifications for this. So I think not least cost implications of how this is going to work. We do see a certain balancing in the working group's report of, of the kinds of impacts this is going to have. And it, it covers some of the issues we've already outlined. What they say is that they they note and indeed embrace the possible consequence that causing factual witness evidence to be far more limited may simply mean that more time is taken up opening trials or in closing arguments or in introducing contemporaneous documentation and debating their import. But in their view, they think that's going to be saved by the time we're going to save cross in cross-examination. And they do rightly point out that in terms of the feedback they've got, that they've said that over the years there has been a reoccurring theme from users in commercial litigation, that it just keeps getting more complex and expensive, and that Indeed, much of the cost of that is front-loaded and the witness statements are a big part of that. But the difficulty that I see it in terms of cost implications is that this is going to be, at least in the beginning, I would say quite time-consuming. And of course, as time goes up, costs go up. We already have what, what Johan outlined as the test drive of these proposals. Now, they are, of course, based on a small sample size. It was four case studies and they were all part seven proceedings in the commercial court. And what we have in terms of looking at what these costs might look like, in three of four of those examples, the time taken to list the documents was insignificant relative to the time spent on the witness statement generally. And what they said was the document list was entirely or almost entirely created from material generated in three simpler examples. And it was mostly something which would have existed anyway. So I think there's certainly some room for positive thinking there. We often do create schedules of documents. And so perhaps the difficulty won't come in making the list. But I think some difficulty and some cost might arise in thinking, well, which documents do we put to the witness if we need to list them? And certainly thinking about how it might impact disclosure or certainly how a witness might be viewed negatively by a judge. So I think there are going to be cost implications and we don't yet have a large enough sample size to know what the scale of those might be. Thank you, Ruth. And what are the sanctions if you don't comply with best practice, Johan? Well, the court has many weapons in the arms coat. It can, on its own motion or upon application, do one or more of the following. First, refuse to give, withdraw permission to rely on, or strike out part or all of a trial witness statement. Secondly, 
ordered that a trial witness statement be redrafted in accordance with the practice direction or as directed by the court. Thirdly, make an adverse costs order against a non-complying party. And or fourthly, order that the witness give some or all of the evidence in chief orally. Thank you, Joanne. I mean, the last one, the idea of a witness giving sort of days of evidence orally is quite amusing. I and mean, that'd be quite a sanction. It'd be sanctioned for the judge as well. Um, just turning to the sort of final topic and, you know, mindful of the fact that this is just the rules that we envisage in the English business and property courts. Um, in what remains, it'd be quite interesting to discuss between ourselves and this no doubt will divide opinion what do we think in terms of these proposals having wider application whether that is in other courts say in singapore or other leading commonwealth jurisdictions that in turn have their own sphere of influence and in international arbitration i mean my my gut instinct is that these rules are quite english english centric and particularly when dealing with uh, civil law jurisdictions, and there's a wide range, uh, would seem quite alien and quite, despite the protestations about this all still being proportionate, even to an English lawyer, at least to me, this seems quite disproportionate and probably all the more so for others. And do you, do you think we might actually be shooting ourselves in the foot in in moving even more work out of the commercial court and other forums and into international arbitration and perhaps to to competitors in in other jurisdictions well philip looking at that uh, what i see as one of the impacts would be london of course is a leading arbitral seat and i wonder whether either of you have any views on the impact this is going to have on behavior generally so of course if these become the norm in the commercial court what kind of flow over are we going to see in international arbitration in terms of the expectations? It might be less, it's always its own game, but I think I wonder whether there'll be a bit of cross-fertilization of ideas from these proposals, even if they start in the commercial courts. I think where this practice direction, what it seeks to do is to chase that holy grail. How do we make litigation or arbitration more cost-effective in eliciting the best evidence available And there are always going to be people for and against what the reform should be. And it is, frankly, courageous of the English court to think about these reforms. And the debate we are having is helpful to think about where where we go towards. I think the courts have have listened very carefully to users. And whatever the end result is, it will be a consensus which users believe would help drive, uh, would help allow better evidence to be given at more proportionate cost. It's very encouraging to have at least one of our panelists uh, be more optimistic about the reforms. What we thought might be useful uh, as a sort of wrap-up of this three-part mini-series is to provide you with 10 takeaway points, the big picture points, the must-knows. And with that, over to Ruth for our first three. I think looking at it, whatever happens with these reforms in your next witness statement, when you're preparing it, we should all remember the concerns which have already been flagged. And those are human memories unreliable and some witnesses do lie. And related to that is the point of remember that if you do use the statement as a vehicle for matters of opinion or argument or commentary, do be mindful that you may well be doing it irritating the judge 
or the arbitrator. The second key point today would be bear in mind the policy behind these proposals and prepare now to start the witness taking exercise with those principles in mind. And I suppose my final third takeaway would be use the statement of best practice. There are some difficulties that we'll all have to think about how to implement in practice, but ultimately there's a lot of useful stuff in there. And the three takeaways from me, number one, be warned, you may have to give a certificate of compliance. So start the internal learning and the processes your risk team will need. Number two, consider what documents you're showing a witness. Are these documents appropriate? And number three, does your witness understand that it owns that statement? That statement of truth is not meaningless legalese. It's been recently strengthened. They need to understand what their obligations are. Thank you, Johan. And then just the last four, uh, one, and these are more familiar because we've just covered them, consider the alternative options, albeit not, not obvious what they might be in many cases. Secondly, be mindful of the fact that judges will be prepared to name and shame and it seems are almost encouraged to do so by this set of reforms in, in the spirit of achieving better compliance and costs. I mean, there's a real tension between complying but also keeping your clients happy and th that will be a very tight rope to walk in the coming months and years as these reforms begin to bed in and become standard practice. I'm sure there will come a point where we won't remember how we used to do things. And the very last one is um, our approach, and by our I mean the sort of English approach to witness evidence, um, reflects a time when literacy couldn't be taken for granted and people didn't send letters, huge volumes of emails which are now commonplace, um, various forms of messaging, WhatsApp, LinkedIn, and so on, text messages, and disclosure or discovery as it's known in the States um, wasn't what it used to be. It would be even in a big commercial case a hundred years ago, you'd have a few key letters and a lot of oral evidence. Times have changed and it, it has presented a real challenge to the want and feeling of being open and giving both sides equal footing, but also trying to do this in a way that doesn't cost hundreds of thousands or even millions in the bigger disputes. We hope that this three-part series has been helpful. We haven't endeavoured to provide you with all the answers, but hopefully the leads to begin and continue the discussion. And um, we hope to hear you again or have you hear us again in due course for some further updates on what is really an exciting and even if not exciting relevant topic thank you very much for tuning in and we really appreciate your time thanks for listening at 39 essex chambers we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors you can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars. Thank you.